Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. J.M. Varesi is a literary historian turned novelist whose fascination with 19th century culture and literature gives us a different take on the grittiness of Victorian London for a new generation of readers worldwide. His new book, The Company, intricately weaves together historical fiction with a gothic thriller that's set against the backdrop of the brutal history of London's wallpaper industry. John Michael Veresi, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you, Georgina. It's a great intro. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you here, and uh, we particularly love it when people are visiting London and make time to come into the sure. studio. I want to just dive into your... We've just been talking about your background, half Italian, half Polish, you grew up in America, <laughs> uh, and mm. um, just talking about that your sort of early life. What were your early literary influences? So Dickens was always a very early influence. My father passed away when I was very young, my family was a little bit split apart, and so I did a lot of... I was on my own a lot, and I did a lot of reading. In Miami? In Miami, yes, in Miami. My family, as we were talking earlier, my family, which comes from Polish immigrants and Italian immigrants, were not terribly college-educated. In fact, I was the first to go to college in my family, but I had some influences, notably um, the mother of a close friend of mine in Miami was extremely literary. They had a library in their house. Most people in Miami do not have a library in their house. They had a bona fide library. And um, that mother of my friend gave me my first copy of Dickens when I was about 14. Which one was it? It was Pickwick Papers. I had expressed an interest in it, and she said, if you're going to read Dickens, you must start at the beginning. And she handed me a copy of Pickwick Papers. And that, that sort of started my real literary trajectory. I'd always been a reader before that, you know, reading children's books in school and things like books for young adults and things like that. But it was with that gift of uh, Pickwick Papers, that's where my real literary career began, I feel. And, you know, most people, uh, well, at least most people in the States, I know it's different over here, but a lot of people in the States will shy away from Dickens because the books are so long. But that's precisely what I liked about Dickens's books was that you could really be with them for long periods of time because they were so long. So I started to tear through them and, uh, you know, that led me to college and then graduate school and a long journey with Dickens that lasted, it's lasted now over three decades. That's extraordinary. I mean, as you say, your work, your, your non-fiction, your literary criticism and all the rest of it has been focused on Dickens with a particular interest in his early novels. That's an interesting question. So actually, it's a particular interest in his publication history. So Robert Patton, who taught at Rice for many years, was one of my thesis advisors. And he is sort of with John Sutherland here in the UK. Mm. They're two of the great scholars of publication history, the mechanics of publication, the relationships with the publishing houses, the contracts that were that were negotiated, all of that kind of stuff. And I got very interested in that aspect of Victorian publishing, serial publication. Many of the Victorian novelists, as you know, were, were publishing serially. And so I really studied that. I mean, that, of course, takes you into the novels. But it's funny. The reason I chuckle a little bit at your question is because very early in graduate school, I said to my other thesis advisor, John Jordan, at the Dickens Project, I said, whatever I do... Let's not 
write a thesis on Dickens's early novels <laughs> because it's so complicated. I mean, to write on Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby and Pickwick around that time because it's it's sort of the thesis that can go on forever because Dickens's process and the business negotiations and the way the novels were constructed themselves in that early period, because he was doing so much, because he was dealing with so many people and so many publishers, because he was trying to get married, because he was trying to get a house, like all these things in the early life before he gets established, you know, he doesn't, we're talking 1836, Pickwick, he doesn't really, really get on a solid footing until the 1840s with Dombey, where he really can take off. I said to John, whatever we do, please don't let me write about that period. And then sure enough, seven years later, I'm I'm writing about Pickwick Papers and Nicholas Nickleby and, and the early novels. But that's the most fascinating period for Dickens because that is when he becomes Dickens. Mm. You know? I'm really interested for you to expand a little bit more on what publication the publishing industry was like at that time. Oh, okay. Well, I wrote a lot on... Nicholas Nickleby for my thesis, and then um, and then wrote an essay for uh, the Oxford uh, Companion to Dickens on Nicholas Nickleby because at that time, 1839, you know, writers did not really have contracts for their work that enabled them to own copyright and enjoy royalties and all the things we think about authorship today. The standard was to just pay a kind of one and done fee, and that had mostly benefits for the writer. You know, they, the writer would get paid, say, 200 pounds for the book, and the publisher would incur any risks. So, you know, that was good. But the writer also, if the book really took off and made a lot of money, they wouldn't get any more. But they didn't have the risk of losing the money. It was sort of a kind of a guaranteed thing. So this was the model. And during that time, so Dickens is writing Pickwick in 1836, and he's writing Pickwick sort of starts writing Nicholas Nickleby alongside Pickwick and realizes, and is writing Oliver at the same time as well. I mean, there's a period, it's a period of about three to four months where Oliver and Pickwick and Nickleby all, all overlap. And, you know, this massive amount of output that he's having. And he's writing Oliver for, for Richard Bentley and realizes that Bentley is really not paying him what he deserves. His other publishers, Chapman and Hall, are publishing Pickwick. And they are beginning to talk to Dickens about the sort of more than the standard 200 pound. Like, we'll give you this much, or we'll give you some bonuses, or we'll give you a set of punch ladles as a gift. Punch ladles. Punch, yes, they presented him <laughs> with some punch ladles. And then, very famously, they Daniel McLeese paints the portrait of Dickens in 1839, which becomes the frontispiece of Nicholas Nickleby, which is really like the first author photograph ever done and is used to market Dickens. So all this kind of stuff that we know from today, the author photograph, copyright, royalties, none of this existed before Nicholas Nickleby. And Dickens kind of congeals all this in partnership with Chapman and Hall at that point and with Nickleby attains what we know as the first modern contract for uh, copyright, not international copyright, but copyright. And he and Bentley, who's publishing Oliver Twist at the same time, have a famous feud, and they sort of go to war with each other, and he, he leaves Bentley. I mean, he, he basically breaks his contract with Richard Bentley, and he calls him, you know, the Burlington Street Brigand or something like You know, they start calling each other names and letters and stuff. But it's really, it's a, it's a dramatic story of sort of grappling for rights 
intellectual property, authorial ownership. It's it's a really fascinating story, which is, so you can see it was very difficult to resist as I was, you know, I mean, I wasn't unearthing that for the first time, but I was unearthing it for the first time for me mm. when I was in graduate school. And so Bob Patton, who is the, and John Sutherland, who have kind of written the Bibles on these things, became heroes for me. And I wound up writing about that. And um, one of my favorite Dickens novels, obviously, is Great Expectations. But it's so much later. You know, he's sort of gone through all this stuff. He has all this stuff behind him by the time he writes Great Expectations. And you don't, you don't see this, um, you know, Great Expectations is kind of, to me, it's like his apotheosis and... I'm sorry, Apogee, and um, you don't see this struggle there. You see this amazingly crafted novel that is, to me, really perfect in every way, almost. You mm. know, you know. Whereas when you look at Pickwick, when you look at Nickleby, when you look at Oliver, you see all this kind of ups and downs roller coaster ride of authorship until really 1847. You hit Dombey, and when he gets to Dombey, he has finally published all these novels. He's made his money. He was never, he was a very wealthy man, obviously, but he was always taking care of so many people that he never, like, you know, sort of had tons to spare. Mm. But by 1847, he can, he can leave all of his other obligations that he had behind the various reporting jobs and things, and he can begin to plan out the novel, the novel that he really wanted to plan, because he couldn't plan those novels. He was month after month just sort of churning out the stories. And they were published episodically. Yeah, episodically. And you can even, I mean, there are just famously all sort of chunky, disjointed parts of Pickwick and and Nickleby and, and Oliver that seem like he just sort of threw something in. And, you know, many times he did, although Bob Patton will argue that everything sort of has a meaning. But... You don't get, as the novels go later, you don't get that because he is becoming more solid in his footing, more able to plan, more financially stable. And with Dombey, you get what are called the first, uh, they were called number plans, but they were essentially maps of the novels that he could plan out and actually know for the first time in his career what was coming, what, you know, what the names were going to be, all kinds, like all kinds of things that he didn't have the luxury of doing in the early career. Mm. But think about that. I mean, Pickwick is 1836, Dombey's 1847. That's 11 years of kind of... Craft learning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You actually wrote, you did an edition of Great Expectations. Yes, I did. For Barnes & Noble Signature uh, series, they released all the classics, sort of did another, you know, major release of all the classics in, I think, 2012. Mm. Let's talk about your fiction now. Sure. Your debut novel, The Spirit Photographer. Now, that's yes. based on a real story? Yes, like the company, it's it's based on a real phenomenon, which is spirit photography. So in the, in the mid-19th century, right around the time of the Civil War, right before it started in the U.S., basically some photographers discovered what is essentially double exposure, to what we would know of as double exposure. But back then, this, the photographs are taken on glass plates, wet plate collodion process, it's called. And what basically happened in one instance was, because photos were taken on glass plates, the plates could be reused. If you had an image that you didn't like, you could kind of wash the silver off and reuse the plate. So what we think happened is that a plate was imperfectly cleaned. 
with some residue of a figure on it, and then another picture was taken on top of it. And this was, we think, probably what the first quote-unquote spirit photograph was. So this was a, a huge phenomenon in the 19th century in the U.S., sort of taking these spirit photographs, selling them as spirit photographs. And remember, you know, the Civil War... One out of four men in the South never came back from the Civil War, right? One out of six men from the North never came back from the Civil War. So in the 1860s, this is a nation in mourning. This is people desperate to reconnect with the dead. The spiritualist movement starts in the 1850s in the U.S. and then continues to rise through the rest of the 19th century in the U.S. This is a nation desperate to connect with loved ones who are gone. So it's a perfect sort of breeding ground for con men who are trying to sell spirit photographs to a large population for a lot of money, and they do. So that's the sort of real life, just like the arsenic wallpaper scandals are based on a kind of a real, almost scientific kind of thing going on in the late 19th century here. The same thing is true of spirit photography. And so with me, the the novels always start with some kind of image. And the image for the spirit photography one was this idea popped into my head one day of the con man developing the picture, but instead of the ghost that he staged in the negative, something else comes up that he didn't put there. So you gasp. That's exactly what my agent did when I told him the story. Let's talk about the company. Sure. Now, this centers on something you've already alluded to, which was the great arsenic wallpaper scandal. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. (laughs) So... In the mid-18th century, a color was invented called Scheele's green. It was a derivative of, it was invented by this chemist, Scheele, Swedish. And it was a brilliant, brilliant green that you would recognize because it's sort of, it's become just part of our culture. It's a, it was an emerald, but a milky emerald. <laughs> if you know the pharaoh and ball colors, they actually have a color called arsenic green, which is very similar to that Shields green or Paris green, it was also called, that was developed in the late 18th century. This color became a rage. People just went crazy for it, and it became not just a uh, color for wallpaper, but a color for many things, clothing, uh, hats, uh, upholstery, you name it, paper. The problem with it was is that it was derived from copper arsenate, which was arsenic, which is basically arsenic. Arsenic is a byproduct of copper mining. So it was used, though, to attain that brilliant color, but then later found to be able to enhance any color. So Lucinda Hawksley, who's written this marvelous, marvelous book, Bitten by Witch Fever, which is a history of the arsenic in domestic product, in wallpaper, but also generally in domestic products book, brilliant book that enabled me to write this book, she talks so much about how this just made its way into the way we live, you know, how arsenic just kind of found its way in. And and there are samples in this book of hers, in Bitten by Witch Fever, that are not real ones, of course, reproductions, of brown wallpapers, of red wallpapers, of, of silver gray wallpapers, all from the National Archives, all of them containing massive amounts of arsenic. So it was not just the greens that the companies were putting it into. That becomes a very important part in the book, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's a conversation where they're actually talking about it. But it 
it speaks to the ubiquity of the chemical mm. in, in the wallpaper And products. so what would happen to people who were living alongside these wallpapers? Well, they'd get very sick, obviously, but, um, you know, all symptoms, headaches, stomach aches, red, itchy eyes, lacerations, bleeding noses, I mean, you name it, there were symptoms. And that was one of the reasons why it was so difficult to identify arsenic poisoning and why so many people were in denial of arsenic poisoning for so long, because the symptoms just mirrored other diseases, diphtheria being a big one. You know, you'd have children dying. I mean, Victorian period mortality is just greater than it is today, right? So people are dying. People are sick. People are sick from all kinds of things. And it just sort of looks like people are dying as they normally die in the Victorian period, right? But so it's hard to attach the arsenic to an actual disease because there were no specific symptoms that were just specific to the arsenic. The way it was eventually figured out, I mean, people just started putting two and two together. Person X installs wallpaper in his study, suddenly starts getting sick, goes away for a week, feels better, comes back and works in the study and is sick. I mean, that's literally how people started to calculate it. Doctors started to calculate it. Queen Victoria in, I think it was rather late. I want to say 1888. Don't quote me on that. There was a guest... And I think in one of the palaces, I think it was Buckingham Palace, who got very sick from the wallpaper. She had it all removed. Extraordinary. But another really extraordinary part of it is that Europe has banned, obviously, anything like that. <laughs> yes. Britain hasn't. No, to this day. To this day, the UK still has no laws against arsenic in domestic wallpaper. So you've taken this this real scandal and you've crafted mm-hmm. this wonderful gothic thriller around it <laughs> about a company that, mm-hmm. that makes this paper. Suddenly the, the person that runs it dies and then there's his heirs or mm-hmm. are they his heirs? You know, right. it's all kind mm-hmm. of wonderful sort of mystery, suspense and the very grittiness of London mm-hmm. in the background. <laughs> that whole, I guess, in a way, an homage to Dickens. I mean, he sure. tells us what, what London was like then. Well, this whole structure of the novel is an homage to Dickens because the company is modeled on Dombey and Son, the company of Dombey and Son. I mean, that's how I, my research for this particular company was Dombey and Son. And even the setting, which is Marlebone, and even the house, the haunted house that I chose is the house, I believe, is the house he modeled Dombey and Son, which is right <gasps> off of Weymouth. Uh-oh, those people are going to get harassed now. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're, we're literally, I don't yeah, know, yeah. half a mile from there. Less. No, we're in the neighborhood. We're yeah. completely in the neighborhood. But this neighborhood, Marlebone, is where Mr. Dombey lives in this elegant, wonderful house that a mercantile, not an aristocratic, it's very important, is the mercantile family, very wealthy, would would live in. And the whole thing takes place around, you know, in Harley Street. And the Harley Street doctors are there. They start setting up shop in the 1850s. And the, the dead father in the book hates that the doctors are there because the doctors are, of course, the ones who will start flagging this. So they're right around the corner from the Harley Street doctors. So early in the novel, she makes, you know, it's narrated by Lucy, the daughter in the family. And early in the novel, she's she makes a couple references to you know, the doctors or father not liking the doctors and things. That's why, you know, that's why. Because they were the early, you know, no, not all doctors, mind you. Mm. Not all doctors. I mean, it was just like, it's a little bit like, um, a little bit like the climate denial situation, I have to say, kind of very similar. I mean, William Morris himself was, right, the greatest wallpaper we manufacturer we know in history and the greatest denier of the arsenic 
scandals. He never fessed up to this being a problem. Like many other people, his house was full of wallpaper and he apparently never got sick. He said he never got sick and, and maybe he didn't. But he didn't have apparently personal experience with this and so he just thought everyone was crazy. And it's his phrase, the title of Lucinda's book, Bitten by Witch Fever, that's his phrase describing, he said, the doctors have all been bitten by the witch fever. It's as if people had been bitten by the witch fever with this craziness, you know. But it was it was obviously it was obviously causing problems. I mean, it literally killed families. And it was only a matter of time before people had to confront this. And as you just pointed out, there was no legal action. There was no parliamentary action that caused this to happen. It was only public demand, which is the most powerful thing that we as consumers have, actually. Mm. It's even way more powerful than, than legal sanctions. It was only public demand that forced the wallpaper companies to start making what they labeled as arsenic-free wallpaper. John, we're running out of time, but I just very quickly want you to talk us through the cover design because it's absolutely Ah, beautiful. Yes, thank you. So the cover was designed by um, one of our brilliant designers at John Murray named Lydia Blogden. And part of my research for the novel obviously involved looking at a lot of wallpaper. And so I had gone into the um, the online archives at the VNA. I'd visited the VNA a bunch of times, but I but I downloaded a bunch of digital samples from the VNA. There's a wonderful collection online. You can go view th- thousands literally of things. And so so I was storing up this collection over the years that I was working on this. And then when it came time to start talking about the cover, my editor, um, Jay Chandler at Baskerville, asked me what I thought the cover should be. And I, you know, I had some ideas. And so I sent them a bunch of the samples from the VNA, and they started kind of working with those. But it was really Jade who pulled out a paragraph that's from very early in the novel where Lucy is describing sort of the, the hallmark wallpaper of the company that's, that's in the father's office that is now her brother John's bedroom. And it's a green, and it's full of arsenic, obviously, but she's describing it, and she's talking about how, as kids, they saw all kinds of different things in it, which is, of course, an important part of the novel. You know, what does one see in the wallpaper? And that what is coming out, what is emerging from the wallpaper becomes a very important thing in the novel, too. And in that paragraph where she's describing their childhood and all the things that they, you know, fantasized about when they were children... There's monkeys, there's pineapples, there's snakes twisting themselves into rivers. Birds and parrots are a very important part of the book. So Jade pulled that paragraph out and gave it to Lydia. And then Lydia just went and did her magic and and came up with this gorgeous sample. And literally, I mean, it was literally the first draft was almost perfect. And it was so beautiful. We were all just astounded. And then, you know, well, a little more of this and maybe this should be yellow and, you know, that kind of thing. But it was a very collaborative, wonderful effort. And I'm I'm thrilled with it. It's just a, it's a jewel of a cover and um, just a beautiful thing to have regardless of what the book is like. Well, they're both absolutely <laughs> worth a position on the shelf. Thank you so much, Thank John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Company is by J.M. Veresi. It's published by Baskerville Press and it's available now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to our production team of Nora Hull and Andre Nikolai Paminchuin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>